Um, If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Go to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're wondering what that is, it is a book. Uh, It's in the middle of your Old Testament. So just open up Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. You'll hit it. Um, very, very excited about this new study. And uh, just if you're uh, new with us, uh, if this is your first time, I know there's just a lot of uh, new faces. We're just thrilled that you're here, thrilled that you're here to gather with us and learn about um, what we would believe is the truth found up in a person, and his name is Jesus. So we don't primarily, uh, if you're kind of viewing all this and seeing all this and wondering, hey, what is this really, what's really happening here? What's, what's going on? What am I seeing? What am I witnessing? Uh, we're not worshiping just like an ideology. We're worshiping what we believe is a historical fact. Uh, We're not worshiping just an event, but a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And so uh, we believe Jesus is God that did come and live the obedient life that was necessary for us and uh, die the death that we could not die to kill sin, absorb God's wrath, and be raised to newness of life, which he alone does in his resurrection. And so we worship Jesus because uh, he deserves and demands that type of praise. And uh, we're glad to do it because when we find our full um, kind of being and leaning into him, we find fullness of life as God. God wired it to be. And so um, it's just good to celebrate that with you. So we worship Jesus through singing songs like you uh, just saw. We sing to him. We declare to him uh, what he does for us and who he is. We worship Jesus by studying the scriptures, the Bible, uh, which God has given to us as his written revelation. So we love to walk through books of the Bible. We just finished Luke, uh, spent about two years in Luke, and now we're hitting an Old Testament book, Ecclesiastes. We also worship Jesus by taking the Lord's Supper pretty much every week so we can be nourished by and remember the benefits that we have received in the broken body, shed blood of Jesus Christ, and we worship Jesus by being generous, by giving. We give on those silver boxes on the back wall uh, because God has been most generous to us in giving us his son, and so we give back to him because all of it is really his to begin with. So um, that's just awesome. So um, here's what I want to just lay before us is I know that um, I've been meeting uh, with a number of people who, um, this is kind of like really new to you. I mean, this whole experience, this whole thing where you, I was meeting with a dear um, person last week, actually, in my office, and they were saying, man, this is, this is the last place I ever thought I would be on Sunday morning. I'm sitting here listening to some guy talk about the Bible, talk about Jesus, talk about God, talk about belief, uh, listening to a band talk about um, this God, this Jesus, um, seeing people actually love each other, seeing people actually want to stay and hang out with each other uh, in a culture where most people in these big types of gatherings like to to leave and live isolated. So uh, just to remind you, I love to always say, I know that it takes a bit of courage for some of you to, to walk in here and be a part of this and see this, and we're just thrilled that you are here because um, we believe God gave the church, God birthed the church after the resurrection of Jesus so that we might be conduits of his grace and truth and so that you might know the good saving work that he accomplished in his cross. And so um, we're thrilled that you're here to listen. And so Ecclesiastes is, uh, for maybe you, if you don't have a church background, you're like, man, Ecclesiastes, I don't even know what that means or that sounds like. That's very odd. Um, no, it's a book in the, in the Middle New Testament. So let me help you understand this. Um, in our Bible, we have 66 books and they are God's revelation to us, okay? They're what we know as what God has inspired for us to know to reveal all that we need to know about himself. And um, in those books, you got lots of different genres, lots of different things. You have prophets which talk about that this Messiah, this Christ would come, that, hey, we need to repent of our sin and turn back to this good, gracious God who longs to forgive sin. Uh, you have the Torah, which is the basically creation to God's commands uh, in the first five books of the Bible that lay before us that we need to be holy because God is holy and we can't be holy apart from someone who is, and that person is Jesus. Then we have, uh, basically, there's wisdom literature where you've got Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. You have Job in there. That's kind of a weird one that's thrown in there uh, if you've read it. But it just, uh, they 
all kind of deal with different things. Proverbs, basically, how do I have wisdom for life with my time, talents, and treasure? Uh, Psalms is basically the hymnal for God's people, more to be sung than actually said. And then you have Song of Solomon, deals with sex, intimacy, beauty, romance, all in the confines of the marriage union that God has given humanity. You have Job, which basically deals with suffering, problems of evil and pain, and a sovereign God who's good in all that he does, and his authority, and how we view that from our vantage point and his vantage point. Then you have Ecclesiastes, and so um, Ecclesiastes is in the wisdom literature portion of your Bible, and Ecclesiastes basically is a little bit different in that it deals with not giving you really answers, but it just asks you a ton of questions. Now, now, if you're like me, who's kind of cerebral in his thinking, that just bothers you. You're like, I want answers. I don't just want questions. I remember when um, I had what I call my crisis of faith when I was uh, a first year in college and I was being taught things that were bizarre to me, even though I'd grown up in a home that loved Jesus, that taught the truth, uh, in a church that taught the truth and loved the truth. I, I was confronted with people who I thought believed the truth, knew the truth, loved the truth, who were telling me just silly things. And so um, I went to my dorm room and I said, I'm going to open up my Bible, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and God, I want you to reveal yourself as to who you are and who I am, what you say as to not what a professor says, not what a pastor says, not what a friend says. I want to know what, what you say in here, and I want you to lay my soul bare in such a way that, that I can know what's true and walk in the truth. And I remember as I'm reading, as I'm going through from Genesis 1, I know you're pushing through Leviticus, right? I'm pushing through numbers. Man, this is a lot of people in the wilderness wandering around. I don't know how this is good for my soul, but you, you keep pushing, and you get to Ecclesiastes, and it's the kind of book I got to where you just have to stop. Like, if you've read it, you just have to kind of linger there. I mean, you're going, okay, here's a guy who is wealthy beyond imagination, who was a king who had over 700 wives, 300 concubines, who um, asked for wisdom, had the most amount of wisdom that any human being had ever had, and here he is at the end of his life all in tears going, it's all meaningless. It's all vanity. And I remember reading it bothered because I'm going, hey, give me some answers. Now, here's what's amazing. Um, as you keep reading through the scriptures, you get your answers and you'll see that Ecclesiastes is basically a shadow, like really any book in the Bible, to Jesus. That's why I always say, it doesn't matter what book we're in, what text we're in, you're going to see Jesus there. We're going to get to Jesus. We're going to get to his cross. We're going to get to his resurrection. You can't read anything in this book and have it make sense if you don't tie it back to Jesus Christ. Okay, so I always say, if you're here as Christianity 101, that's the first thing I gotta tell you when you open up this book is always look for and ask, how does Jesus Christ, the divine son of God, answer this? And so hopefully we're gonna see that through about the whole summer. How does God answer the questions that we see in here? And so um, here in the end is what the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to say. He's gonna say basically, evaluate your life under the sun. Evaluate what you're chasing. Evaluate what your identity is, what your worth is. Think about life. Stop and consider all that you see under the sun. That's what he's gonna say. He's gonna repeat it over and over and over again. And here's what he's gonna say, because if you get everything, if you get your New York City career, if you get your you know, 401k stock to the fullest, if you get all of your stocks rolling and recovering, if President Trump does everything that we hope he would do in your financial market, if you've got the best job, the best family, you've got all your trinkets and toys together, your new house, your new garage, your new dog, your new fence, pepper spray for the kids as they go to school. If you get everything you want, right, nice and good and tidy, but you don't have that tied to the God of the universe, you've lost. 
Like, like you're just chasing the wind. It's just a, a vain life. It's a futile life. It's a totally depressing, hopeless, purposeless life. So he will say in here, basically through the shadow of all of his words, if you don't get anything, adamantly pursue Jesus Christ at all costs. That's basically what's going to be ringing in the back of your head by the time we're done this book. Because if you do not do that, you are left more empty than when you started. So he will say, don't, he's going to keep laying these questions before us to get your heart and your soul to a place that says, don't let your goal be wealth. Don't let your goal be self-indulgence. Don't let your goal be a better self-image. Don't let your goal be all the wisdom of the world. Let your goal be not what lays under the sun, but what lays beyond the sun, which is a God who exists, who made you, who sustains you, who will judge you, and who made a way for you. That's what we're going to see in this amazing, amazing, beautiful book, who is the son of God, S-O-N, right, who true life is lived from, through, and for. Cool? So we excited? Let's, let's get into verse one. We're just going to jump right in and see what God might have to say to us. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Okay, so um, out of the gate, if, if you study this at all, you know that preacher is actually a terrible translation. It really means teacher, really means philosopher, really means somebody who's just going to lay before you a lot of questions. Okay, so he's not really a preacher in the sense of a preacher's job is to teach you something and answer things for you. This guy is more of a teacher in saying, hey, here's all that I've learned. I'm just going to share it with you. Listen to wise grandpa. Okay, like I've been there, done that, and just sit on my leg, and let's just talk about this so that you might understand these things. That's what this person is writing and getting after. And so um, this is one of the reasons that it bugged me, but it also led to so much fruit for me, uh, is because, listen, if, if you don't understand that this book is a book not about giving you answers, but about asking you questions, you'll just be endlessly frustrated, and you'll throw it away. Okay, so understand that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is to get you to stop, consider, meditate, think, which none of us do, right? I mean, some of you guys, like 10 minutes in the sermon, I gotta go on my iPhone, right? I mean, I gotta find out who's checking my Facebook, right? I mean, it's silliness for you that you would have five seconds of silence to stop and consider. You always have to be doing something. And so here the writer's gonna show us, no, no, actually it's best for you if you would stop, consider, and examine your life and what it's for, and what it's about. And he wants you to understand these questions so that you can understand the beauty and power of the scriptures, so ultimately you would understand the power of Jesus Christ. Um, and this teacher, I believe, is Solomon. A lot of people, not a lot of people, <laughs> some people say uh, he didn't write it. I think the burden of proof is more on those who disagree. Uh, he was David's son. He was a king in Jerusalem. You're going to learn that he was wise. Jesus will say, basically, he's the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus. Uh, you'll learn that he's a very affluent man, very wealthy man. This man, Solomon, had more than any other human being ever had. He acquired more stock than anyone ever had. He had whatever you wanted was his. Whatever needed to be owned, he owned. So uh, no one's more wealthy than Solomon. So no one in this room, I don't care who you are, can say, hey, I've got it over Solomon. No, you don't, okay? He, he owned more as the world's wealth. He oversaw building projects, we're going to learn. Well, he oversaw the building of God's temple and other projects. So it's, it's clear that every reason for us to believe that this is Solomon. Uh, First Kings, Second Chronicles, those are great places to go just to read about his life if you want to see more uh, about his life. But, but in short, here's Solomon's life. Um, Solomon's life was a material life, but a sad life. 
Okay, so um, his dad was David, his mom was Bathsheba. Um, before him, David commits adultery with Bathsheba, has um, her husband killed off in battle. They conceive a son, he dies, uh, the child dies, and then they conceive a second son, and this is Solomon. Okay, so here's Solomon born into a generational line of adultery, of fornication. Of, so if you're like, man, my family tree's jacked up, so is his. Okay, so he, he has all that. He experiences bad things, horrific things, um, and he comes into this world. He has 700 wives. 300 concubines. Now, this is where you got to read his life, not as a moral example, okay? It's more um, descriptive than prescriptive. Some people are like, man, yeah, see? Man, they had seven wives, so I can. Yeah, no, it didn't go well for him. So you can't say, oh, he had seven wives, going to work out well for me. No, it ended up in turmoil and train wreck and tears. The Bible doesn't give you those facts to tell you that's what you should do. It gives you facts. You know that they're facts, He's telling you about a person. He's telling you about, you about his life. And so we're examining this person's life and what he learned through all his experiences so we might live differently. And here's why I love the Bible. Um, it always lay, lay, levels the playing field. Because, because what does the human heart naturally say? What do all of us naturally say? All of us naturally say, here's what I think a lot of people do, um, we see suffering, pain, plight, difficulty, and we would all agree, okay, the name of the game is to avoid at all costs pain, suffering, plight, and difficulty, right? So I'm going to live my life in such a way that I will avoid all of those things, and what's awesome is here, Solomon's going to say, okay, well, I had no limitations, there's nothing the world could not give me, and I'm going to say not so much, I'm going to say, even if you swing the pendulum to the other side and you have no suffering, pain, plight, or difficulty, and by the way, if you're living that life, you're not living here, then I will show you that it is still vain. It is still loss. It is still completely hopeless. So the Bible just says, let's level the playing field for everybody, whether you're in the Sudan or New Jersey. And that's what he's going to do. Verse 2, look at what he says. A super encouraging beginning. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. Just in case you didn't hear him, meaningless, vapor, lost, depressing. This is life, says the preacher. All is vanity. You're going, hold on, hold on, Solomon. Everything is vanity. Every bit of life is vanity. My marriage is vanity. My house is vanity, my dog is vanity, my kids are vanity, my, my job is vanity, my, my, the where I go, what I do is vanity. Yeah. Yeah, it's all vanity, it's all meaningless. It's all hopeless, it's all depressing. You only live so long before you realize the grief in life, the nauseousness that life can bring, no matter who you are. It just says it's all vanity. And he continues to say this, it's depressing, it's futile, it's passing away. And he's writing to you truthfully and honestly. That's what I love about this. He's basically saying, I had a lot, I did a lot, and I didn't enjoy a lot. I had more money, I enjoyed more pleasure, I possessed more wisdom than anyone, yet it all ended in a barrel that was empty for me. And he wants us to stop and think about the question, vanity of vanities, why are we here? Why are you sitting in your chair this morning listening to some kid talk about the Bible? 
Why are you going to leave here and go to maybe the same place for lunch? Why are you going to go back home and do maybe the same thing you do in the afternoon? Why are you going to have for dinner tonight what's normally your Sunday dinner? Why are you going to watch tonight normally the TV show that's your Sunday TV show? Why are you going to get up Monday morning tomorrow and go to the same Starbucks to get the same cup of coffee, to do the same drive or on the same train, to go to the same cubicle or same office or same place, talk to the same people and do the same job, have lunch at the same place, go to the afternoon, do the same thing, come home, hoping that your wife has a kindling fire ready for you with a dinner on the table to eat the same thing all over again. And if it doesn't happen, you'll be angry again. Kids will be running around, tripping on toys. You get in. You help to somehow fondle the mess. And then somehow you want to lay your head on the couch to get one ounce of like rest to watch the TV show again that you want to watch to lay your head down and do it all again on Tuesday. Why? It's vanity, right? It's meaningless. Like, why do you get out of bed in the morning? Have you ever actually thought about it, though? Why do you wake up? Why do you do what you do? Why do you run this rat race that is life? What's the point of all of this? And people like to answer this in a lot of ways. And Solomon's going to kind of get at those different answers in a moment. Look at verse 3, what he says. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? (laughs) Solomon goes, think about it. What do we get for all our hard work under the sun? If you're married, why do you work so hard at your marriage? Anyone who's married knows marriage isn't easy. If you have kids, why, why do you toil so hard to, to raise up your kids and save for their college and do all that you do for your children? If, if you've got a job, why do you go every day to your work and toil and work and strive? Why do you do anything that you do? If you're a student, why do you labor in your studies? To get your degree? Okay. Why? To get to college? Okay. And then to get out of college, get a good job? Okay. To then get what? A nicer house than what you would hope to get? To then get what? A nicer self-esteem that you wouldn't get another job? Like, like, why do you do all that? What is this toil that we do under the sun? Why does it matter in the end of all of it? Why do we get out of bed? What is it adding to us? Why do we study, work, learn, toil, grow? Now that word gain, he says here, that's used over 10 times. It basically just means leftovers. Like what do you have left over after all of your work, all of your exhaustion, mentally, physically, emotionally, and all you do in the world, in life? What, what does it leave you with? What are you left with? What gain do you have? What is it accomplishing? What is your leftovers if you pay off all your debts, work your life into retirement, when it's all said and done, what is your life for? Now, he gives us here in this text, and if you're an underliner or a highlighter, you have to do this because this is how you're going to understand the whole rest of the book and everything that he says. He's going to give you the, the limitations, the parameters for everything else he's going to share with you in this book. He says, under the sun. This whole book is pr- the perspective of life under the sun, a life not tied to God, with no revelation from God, with no thoughts for God, ignoring God, disowning God. So all that you see, this is the perspective of life is is futile, it's vain, it's passing, it's worthless, it's pointless if it's not somehow tied to the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, who made all things, owns all things, prescribes all things. So he's given the boundaries of everything he will say. He'll also say under heaven, so under Under the sun, under heaven, this is his perspective. This is the way culture views life. This is the way the world views life. This is the way that everyone who does not have a renewed mind in Jesus Christ views life. 
sees life. And even, I would argue, right, us as Christians fall into the pattern of seeing life this way. So you got a lot of different types. you got atheism, right? There's just no God. You have deism, right? There is a God, but he's not really connected. He's not really present. He's a landlord that never shows up. You have empiricism, which says, okay, well, I can really know what's real. I can really know what's tangible. I can really know truth by what I can see, what I can touch, what I can taste, what I can feel. And then what we do is we try to answer, right, all of these different, like, like genres of thought, right? So there's humanism. I don't know. I mean, the meaning of life is just to enrich the life of others. And so, so I just need to be good and, and kind of leave a legacy, and then you have hedonism, which says, okay, I need to somehow just search for the, the smallest ounce of joy in life. I, if I can find where I can find joy and pleasure, even if it's for one minute of my day, man, that is living. That is true life. And then you have this weird big word, I can't even say it, existentialism. <laughs> if you ever feel like you're not smart, don't worry. I'm not either. Like, what that basically says is, man, let's just, let's just peg the cruelty of life and just, just strut it out and force our way in to somehow just deal with the pangs of life and believe that something might be better somewhere. That's encouraging. Right, but that's how people live, right? So, so this, is, this is the forms of thought that kind of lay in our hearts, lay in our souls as we kind of work towards an understanding of life Let's just rail against the vanity of life by living courageously. And somehow by living courageously, I will defy the cruelty of life. That in itself is just a vain way of thinking. But yet, this is how culture views life and lives life. If you speak to your coworkers, or maybe you're here and you think one of those is resonating with you, good. You're going, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely. At least you've got enough intellectual honesty to say, yeah, that's how I view life. That's how, what I believe about life. But look at verse 4. Solomon's not going to be kind to us. He says in verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. <laughs> I love how honest Solomon is. He's just brutally honest. He doesn't kind of dance around the issues with you. He just says, hey, no, here's the reality. Here's the truth of what you're trying to understand. Okay, and he, and he says first, I love this, generations come and generations go. We see this all the time. Listen, um, we're seeing it in this room. So there are so many generations, and here's what happens is a generation comes in and says, I'm gonna fix everything. So I got new gadgets, I got new technology, I got new thoughts, I've got new rallies, I've got new protests, I've got new intuition, and we're gonna overcome the world, and we're gonna make the world right and do everything the world should be. And what happens? Uh, you don't, and then a new generation comes in. And they say, oh, we're going to do it. We're going to do it with all our new technology and all our new intuition and all that we've learned from our great, 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 great grandparents who didn't do it right and failed. And we're the new generation that's going to do it. And what happens? Same sins, same problems, same difficulties. Rinse and repeat. Generations come, generations go, and you think that you're the agent of change? You think you're the one that's somehow going to magically show up as the genie in Aladdin and go, hey, I'm here? And, and all of this will be made right. He's saying that's a futile way of thinking. That's never happened. Solomon says, give me a break. History repeats. 
Every generation that dies out brings in a new generation that tries the same thing. And he says our lives are just like nature and the cosmos. So that tree, those bushes in your yard, at least most of them that you moved into your house with when you leave are still going to be there. The rivers and streams are still going to do the same thing. The stars are still going to be hung in the same place. Your lives are no, no different from nature and the cosmos And this, if this is all that life is under the sun. No matter how many times you do your laundry, you doing it again next week? You bet. Some of you don't, and you're miserable. It's just a stupid way to live. I don't know why you do it. It just piles up, and you're buried under the smell of it. You're going to cut your hair, right, soon, and it'll just grow back for some of you, right? So, so you've got all, all these things happening over and over. You're going to cut your grass. I cut my, actually, Honest, I did not cut my grass. Some gracious friends from this church came and cut my grass because it was so long. It looked like no one lived in the house, our house, <laughs> honestly. And what's going to happen? The grass is going to grow back. Um, you're going to get your business, right? You're going to get your business back up to where it should be. You're going to get your business kind of growing and flowing and operating in such a way that it finally operates the way you want it to. And what's going to happen? Next week, a new difficulty, a new problem, a new complexity. Every time you think you've arrived at something, you realize, no, this is just the way that it goes, and it will happen over and over again. And Solomon is saying, listen, all of this is just exhausting and doesn't matter at all if this is all there is under the sun. Well, why are you mowing your yard? Why are you cutting your hair? Why are you doing anything you're doing? If all that life is is under the sun, then by definition, that is all there is to life, and therefore life is meaningless. So we have annihilationism with no destination, and somehow that makes us think we need to have equal rights? What a bizarre way to think. What a bizarre way to live. And so here, Solomon is showing us that we will not do this. This is not the way to live. Um, one popular one, right? is people always say, man, we need to take care of the environment, right? I'm not talking about in the God-centered way, in the man-centered way, right? We need to recycle, we need to help the environment, and then somehow, otherwise, man, humanity's gonna die off, humanity's gonna be gone, something bad's gonna happen, existence as we know it is gonna be futile. Well, here's the thing, did you know, regardless of your belief, inevitably that's going to happen? Now, the Christian believes, hey, we will have a recreated earth, a new earth and a new heavens, right? But, but everyone else, no matter, regardless of your belief, knows and understands, even scientists will say, hey, can this universe continue? They'll say with their science and everything else, oh, this thing will eventually die off. So here's, here's what's crazy. Here's what, here's what Solomon's trying to get you to say in your heart. He's trying to have honest assessment, have some intellectual honesty to say, hey, what's, what's happening here? Because here, inevitably, at some point, regardless of your belief, this world passes, so what you're really asking yourself is, maybe I can like slow down or hinder what's going to happen by my stupidity. Like, like maybe I can somehow alter it. I mean, I, I remember one theologian saying, talking about like the Titanic, when the Titanic hit the iceberg and the, and the, and the boat was sinking, and he was talking about how um, it's amazing. Our, our, the futility in our life is like us finding out the boiler's about to blow, and you're being like, oh my goodness, we need to go replace the boiler, because if the boiler's fixed, then we'll uh, you know, just shrink faster and we'll die two seconds later. It's, it's a weird way to live. It's a weird way to think. It's a weird way to process. So here Solomon is just showing us that these are things that we have to consider. 
So it doesn't matter really, friends, brothers and sisters, it really doesn't matter if you live a life of vicarious sacrifice and love and care and concern, or you live your life as a wicked, aggressive, murderous, insolent person, if in the end this is all there is. It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what you do if life under the sun is all there is. If there is no God who made you, if there is no God sustaining the universe, if there is no life after death, if there is no one who can, make, who can help you make any lasting dent on anything, why bother? Life under the sun is futile and hopeless apart from the source of life, the giver of life, which is God, namely seen in Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to see true life is found through this whole book, through this whole study. Now, here's the thing. You can ignore it, you can suppress it, or you can pick up your head out of the sand and acknowledge it. Because here's the thing. Everybody eventually feels the grief and pangs of life, right? I mean, we, we all would say, no matter how old you get, the longer you live, the more you experience this, the more you see this. And listen, some people don't, don't live with that grief, but it's not because it's not real. It's because they refuse to acknowledge it. They refuse to admit their worldview. They refuse to look at the world in such a way that would say, wow, man, this is kind of off. This is kind of weird. This doesn't make sense why I would view this and say this based upon the way that I live. And so intuition is not tied to God of the universe, him giving revelation. Intuition is tied to your thinking, which leads to futility because you forget that you were the one who was made. You're not the one who made you. So you need revelation outside of yourself, not revelation from within yourself. And that's what Solomon is trying to get us to understand and see. Um, let's say someone told you tomorrow, hey, go to the Paramus Park Mall you know, by the ju juicy Java, whatever it is, like in the, in the middle, and, and just sit there and just people watch. Why? Just do it. <laughs> why? <laughs> what would bother you? I want to know why, why I should do that, right? Why should I go sit at Primus Hawk Mall by juicy Java, whatever it's called, and just people watch, right? Here's what's nuts to me. Like, like you're going to peg over and over again, why, 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 with a Monday afternoon at Paramus Park Mall, but Solomon's going, you won't ask why, why, why when it comes to your existence? Like, you won't think thoughtfully about the day-to-day? -day? Because Solomon is showing you, what he's trying to reveal to you is, you're not thinking thoughtfully. You're not thinking at all if you're not considering what the meaning of life is, what the purpose of life is. If, if nothing is over the sun and all that we see is under the sun, then this is all vanity. What do you get for your toil? Look at nature and the cosmos. Verse 8, look at what he continues to say. All things are full of weariness. Now, if you're tracking with me and you're agreeing with me, you're going, yeah. This is depressing. This is not encouraging, right? Up until now, this is, this is not something where my heart is feeling warm. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear fulfilled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. See, there are optimists and there are pessimists. <laughs> 
All right? Um, if you're a pessimist in the room, you're going, yeah, Solomon, I'm tracking. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. This life is miserable. It's not worth living. It's awful. It's just depressing. I mean, my day-to-day, yeah, he's speaking my language. The world that I live in is just utterly downcast. It's without hope. It seems futile. It seems aimless. It seems pointless. It seems meaningless. If you're the optimist, you're going, well, we can still try to enjoy the pleasures of this random accident of colliding molecules. I mean, we can like enjoy our children, right? We can go to the beach. We can, we can hug somebody, right? We can show affection. We can do all those things, right? Yeah, you can do all those things. Just don't look at the bigger story. Just work through the pains of life by believing that you can overcome the pains of life by somehow just trying to find pleasures in life. But eventually, if you don't look over the sun at the bigger story of the God who made you in his image, you're running the rat race where ultimately that leads to a brick wall. And you'll just keep hitting the brick wall over and over and over again. That's why Solomon doesn't let us stay there. Solomon's providing a worldview here. He's basically someone, if you come from no one and go to nowhere, there's no reason to be here. (laughs) It's just silliness. Your whole life is silliness. It's futile. It's pointless. I mean, really think about this. I mean, if we just go with cultural's understanding, right? We're just a random collision of billions of molecules and we become electrochemical people whatever people is, then the love that we have for people, for our spouse, for that's just some kind of like magnetic field that I want to kind of drift towards in someone that's not really human but just kind of a bunch of accidents. Our children, we're going to love just random accidents. How can you really love that? How can you really care for that? How can any of your feelings be tied to that in some tangible way? So what do you do? You just brave life and push through life and think about life and embrace life as just thinking less about the accident that you are? Or is there a God beyond us, a God who made us, a God who created us, a God where we find our origin, a God where we find our understanding, a God where suffering and hope and meaning and life is all linked to him so that no longer everything is vanity but full of meaning and the deepest of joy? And that's what Solomon is showing us. I heard one writer say, people kill their humanity all the time by refusing to think. Like really we just kill our souls by refusing to think. Now that can be negatively or positively. Either you think intuitively, you think intellectually, you try to deal with what's at hand or you just brush it aside and suppress it in your own rebellion, in your own ignorance. But he says eventually that kind of suppression and ignorance leads you to kill yourself, to kill your soul. And this is why Solomon here says the eye, right, is not satisfied with seeing or the ear fulfilled with hearing. He's saying everything in culture tugs you, pulls you, calls you towards you saying, hey, if you get this, if you do this, if you build up your self-worth on anything apart from the God of the universe, you will somehow be satisfied. You'll somehow be at ease. Somehow this unexpected life and excitement will validate for you that you exist. So what do we do? We just search through life doing all of these things. It's amazing what he shows us here. 
It's the mantra of the world. Every ad, commercial magazine you read. I mean, this is the checkout aisle of every grocery store. This is five feet into Barnes & Noble. No one has to be a rocket scientist to say, oh, oh, wow, yeah, this is exactly what the world lays before us, right? Try this, enhance this, do this, change this, add this. And what happens? If you do these things, if you accumulate more, if you add your already dissatisfied life, then somehow you'll find some existence over the rainbow that's all you ever wanted it to be. And then I can live at peace in my soul, right? Then the angst will go away. Then the restlessness will go away. Solomon's going, um, you can't up me. <laughs> I had all there was to have. You can't have more money than me. You can't have more wisdom than me. You can't have more spouses than me. Well, you, you're trying to tell me. This is a man telling you who had it all. This isn't a man with no experience who doesn't have any understanding. This is a man who has lived long enough, seen all it long enough, had enough to say, hey, you gotta trust me on this one. You gotta, you gotta believe me on this one. Grandpa's right. I'm 95, you're 20. Right? Listen to the one who is wise, the one who is telling us something that we can believe and trust and understand. And it's not just because we're going to see him saying it, it's because he's validating what God has said. He's validating what Jesus has said. Let me just put this in Bergen County language. Um, we live in a very, very wealthy area. Now, comparatively and statistically, you're going to say, yeah, there are parts. And listen, I'm not saying that you're rich or wealthy based upon your understanding, but I'm saying based upon the world, you're filthy rich. Majority of the world lives on $2 a day. We all above that? Yep, you are. Okay, so, so we're right now, right, richer than the majority of the world, comparatively and statistically. We are sick in our wealth. We are sick in what we have. We are just disgustingly wealthy, affluent. And so here, one of the dangers for us living where we live is that basically one of the dangers, right, to finding true joy, finding true meaning, true meaning, one of the dangers to that is this really silly play out in life that Solomon mentions that happens over and over again where we think if we get something new, it'll be new for us in a saving sense, but it's not new. So what he continues to lay before us is, okay, let's just add new toys in, new trips, new houses, new spouses. You just add it in. Like, just keep adding it new. Make it new. Rinse and repeat to where you finally feel like you find meaning and satisfaction of your soul. And here Solomon's saying, listen, you believe the new house, the new toy, the new wife, the new car that brings about that weird relief and excitement for you that somehow validates that you exist is somehow going to quench your thirst. You're chasing something that's imaginary. You're chasing the wind, he's going to say next week. You're chasing something that, that isn't real. You're chasing something that's ethereal. You're chasing something that you can't put your hands on. And you will keep going after it and going after it and going after it until you end up completely exhausted. Understand nothing changes. Give me a break. Cars are cars. Houses are houses. Toys are toys. Nothing's new. Trinkets are trinkets. They had them hundreds of years ago. They were just different. Now we've made them better and more exciting, but they're still trinkets. They're still toys. They're still things. Nothing is new under the sun. Nothing's going to make things better inside of you. No change of work for you. No increased income. No addition to your wardrobe. Nothing's going to fix you internally because all you're trying to do is fix you externally. But the issue, right, is not external, it's internal. And so Solomon is showing us, this is what I am just mourning over. 
that you believe that externally you'll somehow find meaning, but I'm telling you it's found through something happening to you internally. I'm not saying you find it internally. I'm saying a God outside of you over the sun transforms you internally. He sets your mind on the way things are wired, the way things are meant to be lived, the way things are meant to be had, the way things, the way we're supposed to operate in relationships and see the world and see people and see money and see our possessions and see people. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does, which is why he says this in verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. (laughs) See, maybe some of you think, um, okay, Pastor Mike, I I hear everything you're saying, but really at the end of the day, like I'm having trouble with existence and and a being and and God and him creating and, and wrath and judgment and sin and payment and heaven, hell, all those things. But so we're really here just to make the world a better place. Like, just, let's just enrich the lives of each other, right? Let's just try to be kind, try to be tenderhearted, try to be giving. But Solomon is saying, friend, you can't make a single difference with your life if you don't have a basis for it underneath the God of the universe. It doesn't matter. Like, no one's going to remember you. Like, you're still headed to nowhere. You're still headed to the dead end. Like, it really doesn't do anything. It just covers up the bigger story. It just covers up the callousness that's been building over your heart. Really, you're just trying to suppress what's always there as you've been hardwired to worship, hardwired to see God, know God, love God. You're suppressing it, not wanting to believe that by trying to accumulate for you these other types of beliefs and longings and thoughts that will somehow appease you to a place where, yes, I can live this way, I can live at ease this way, and I'm telling you, if you're living that way, your head is in the sand like an ostrich about to be devoured, but he says, I don't see anybody. I'm hiding. And here he shows us, this is powerful. 500 years, no one's going to remember you. You're just one more life, if that's true. In 5,000 years, no one's really going to remember you. I mean, think about it. Does anyone in here know their great, 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 great grandfather? No. You don't remember him. And if you do, great. You're one out of 300. Right? Not a good odd. (laughs) Right? I I mean, nobody's remembered This legacy, this Solomon saying, life living not in connection to God, a revelation from God's a hopeless life. Suffering's not tied to anything for you. Joy's not tied to anything for you. Life's not tied to anything for you. Meaning really isn't tied to anything for you. Happiness really isn't tied to anything for you. Um, What's the point? What's the point of this? Um, It's really not until you honestly assess the futility of life. It's not until you honestly assess life under the sun apart from what is over the sun that you start to walk in intellectual integrity. Because Solomon's showing us our souls are hungry. Right, our, soul, our souls are hardwired for worship. Our souls want to find meaning in something. So if there's nothing under the sun, then we need to look over the sun to a world where God lives, where you're going to find your understanding, where you're going to find out your sinfulness in light of his holiness, where you're going to find out why we need payment for sin, why we love the way we love, why we operate as image bearers of the triune God. We're going to need these things, need to see these things, and need to have these things. We desperately need this. So if nothing 
nothing satisfies your soul under the sun, we have to look to a God who said, I'm not just going to stay over the sun, I'm going to come under the sun, giving my S-O-N son in the person of Jesus Christ. And until that happens, you are going to live what every commentator calls the treadmill of life. Right? You're a little bit more sweaty, a little bit more healthy, but you're just existing. You're just breathing. You're not living. You're not really alive. You're not really enjoying. Solomon is pushing, pushing you to admit. He's going to push you to admit this through this whole letter that there's no middle ground. That's what he's doing. Either there is absolutely no God who we can not know and we are a random collision of molecules that make electromagnetic fields in us that make us pull towards each other and do certain things towards each other or there is a God who is to be known, who did make us in his image, who will judge the living and the dead, who did make a way for sinners, who is just and good in all that he does, who did design and create us as the origin. There's only two. And once you land in one of those, you pursue those. You can't stay in the middle. Solomon's saying it just doesn't make sense at all. So we can go the cultural understanding, guys, like I said, that there is no God. We are just accidents. Eventually, we're headed for annihilation with no destination. But while we're here, man, let's spend trillions of dollars on curing cancer. Man, but while we're here, let's just... I don't know, dig water wells as many as we can. Man, while we're here, let's just send everybody to the Middle East. Man, while we're here, why? Think though, why? If at the end of the day, this is all there is, and then you're just a flash in the pan. It really makes no sense. It really is total stupidity of you to exhaust your life towards that end if it makes no lasting dent whatsoever. That's why every time you realize something has gone wrong, you realize you were made for a new and better world. You realize that your heart is longing for a world where justice and peace and harmony and life and all those things are bound up in the way that God wired it to be from the beginning. But Adam and Eve, our great, 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 the only great grandparents that most of us know, right, screwed it up, right? And so because that fracture entered, discontentment entered, sin entered, rebellion entered, we think that we are awesome, that we are God, that we know the right way, that we through our intuition and thinking can tell everybody else how to believe, how to think, how to act. When God says, I came outside of you and I gave you revelation so you would know there's a new earth and a new Jerusalem coming, for those that trust in my son Jesus and all will be made new. There is something new under the sun and only that thing is Jesus Christ. And God is making new creations every day. God is rewiring the thoughts of mankind and the heart affections to worship him and know him and love him when they loved everything but him. That's amazing. I mean, Solomon's giving you a shadow of Jesus he wants your heart to be pressed till eventually you have to have him. Like, like there's, there's no other option for you. Like nothing else exists under the sun for you. I mean, you can try everything. Pantheism, reincarnationism, annihilationism, humanism, hedonism, empiricism. You can try everything, man, but eventually the only way for true life and joy to be found in the deepest parts of your being will be found in the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. So let's land the plane. Uh, maybe you don't like anything I'm saying. You don't like anything Solomon's saying. And I would just encourage you, maybe that's because he's pegging a wound in your soul that needs mending. 
Maybe that's why you don't like it. This is why Ecclesiastes, like every book, is going to want us to get to Jesus. If you read John, the Gospel of John, I love this because he's writing to people like culture who love philosophy. The Greek philosophers at the time, they're going, man, we just got to find out the meaning of life. If we can find out the meaning of life, then we're going to be happy. We're going to be able to exist right. We're going to be able to operate right. And what does John do? Out of the gate in John's gospel, he says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. That's Jesus, the Word. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came, incarnated, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was the glory of God. I love this. He comes, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John says, you can know life, you can see life, you can have life, and that is the word. That is Jesus. Jesus is life. Jesus is meaning. Jesus is truth. Jesus is reality. I heard one pastor say, this is amazing. True life is not bought by a person. True life is a person. It's like true life isn't chasing something. True life is actually having a real person, a real God who's not deistic, unattached, landlord that never shows up, or atheistic that does not exist, a God who is intimately, aggressively, ferociously, actively committed to your joy in the work of his son so that you might know him, love him, worship him, and not ignore him. I mean, this is what God does in the incarnate work of his son, Jesus Christ. This is unbelievable what John is saying to these Greek philosophers. And when you worship Jesus and find your life in him, then everything in your life is a reflection to point you to that God who made you in his image. It shows you aspects of God, namely in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is why later, chapter 10, right, we need someone over the sun to come break into life under the sun, right? Right? And he does it in Jesus. I love John 10, 10, even though it's been totally abused. A pers- it says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came, that's Jesus saying this now, the word become flesh, the word from heaven incarnated down. I came that may have life and have it abundantly. So he's saying, I did come so you might have life. I don't mean life as in the more accumulation of things, I don't mean abundance and you're just going to have more to somehow quench the already aching parts of your soul that needed more. No, material can try and do that for you. I don't give you more material. I give you me. And the more of me that you have, the more abundantly the fullness of life grows because meaning increases increases depth, increases knowledge, increases. All of a sudden, you're wired and hardwired together. You're not trying to live unlike the way you were made. So, so really, sin is just rebutting against God's good design over and over and over again until you finally get in alignment with how he said this is it. That's why we love teaching the truth, not because we're trying to like hate people, or because we believe, man, we're more committed to joy than the world is. We're more committed to fullness of life than the world is. We're more committed to the health of your growing family and marriage and life and work than the world is. Because God says this is how you're wired to be and grow and act. So Jesus Christ comes and removes the futility in your soul and the vanity of life and brings about the meaning that you're longing for. Because here's what happens, right? All of a sudden, when you're made new in Jesus, think about this. When you became a Christian, 
Everything that you touched, held, thought, felt, everything that that gave you reality, everything that gave you existence, and no longer owns you. It's now a conduit to point you to God, right? You're now a steward of all those things. You're not enslaved to anything anymore. Now all that you have, all you taste, touch, feel, and breathe and see is all to point you to a greater reality where greater joy is found so you're not owned by anything and owned by him and you're actually the most free man that exists. Amen? Okay, yeah. I mean, if you're a Christian, that's great news. And if you're not, you can have that good news. You can find true life. Amazing, right? Your, your toil is no longer in vain. It's going to reverberate for eternity. It doesn't stop at the end. Your conversations are conversations that might be had at the banquet feast of the Lamb for ages and ages and ages. Your love for your children and growing them up in the knowledge of the truth is so that it might reverberate into eternity and last where you see them worshiping and being with the God who made them and and living life in such a way as they were wired to live it so they don't kill themselves mentally, emotionally, and maybe physically. I mean, all of a sudden, you're cleaning your house not because you just have intuition to do it, but because God is a God of order and you want things to look right. Makes sense now why you do anything. Suffering. I mean, suffering's now tied to him. I mean, he suffers with you and he suffered for you so that you would know that suffering here is not the end and that suffering is but a glimpse of what you will enjoy more in a suffering-free heavens and new earth where God will fully be rid of the futility and fracture that sin brought into this human race. All of a sudden, joy is tied to him, meaning is tied to him, circumstances are not, what you have is not. It's powerful that Jesus does all this to bring about every bit of justice that your heart longs for till it's fully realized in Jesus Christ. I heard a commentary say it better than I ever could say it, so I'm going to read it to you. A person who is enlightened by the Son of Righteousness is not under it, but in it. Thus it is said in the gospel, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, not under the sun. You really need to read that for the next 10 weeks to like, to like embrace all of it. But, but in short, some of you believe, he's, what he's basically saying is some of you believe you can trust your thoughts. You believe that you can trust well, right and wrong matters and good works are fruitful, but really you don't have any basis for that outside of the God of the universe. So you're just living off of what he has. So you can either acknowledge him, turn to him, and love him and trust him, or ignore him and suppress him. And if you're a Christian, I would just encourage you, only giving ourselves fully to Jesus brings about fullness of life. So where are the spaces in your life that you're not giving him full allegiance? You're not giving yourself fully to him because you're buying the lie that I don't know if I need to give that aspect to Jesus because I need something else to quench the thirst. I need something else to help me in this meaningless pursuit. And I'm telling you, and you've tested and tried it, it never holds up. So ask Jesus where you need more of him to fill yourself. Only full allegiance to Jesus brings fullness of life. Listen, every time... Kristen and I try to operate outside the good, right design and bounds of God in marriage, every time it goes wrong. (laughs) 
Like every time there's heartache, every time there's tears, and every time we rewire and align ourselves with Jesus, giving him full allegiance as husband, as wife, there is more fullness of life in our marriage. Every time. You can try that with kids, work, everything. You just fill in the blank. doesn't matter. So where is it in your heart? Where are those spaces that God's saying, lay it down? What do you need to lay down at his feet? But he's saying, lay down. Let's ask him for help to do that. God, I pray that you would use your word to expose in us our need for you, our need for a savior, our need for someone to come who did not sin and yet takes our sin through the death and resurrection of himself, that being Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would liberate some this morning in your kindness, that they might see Jesus Christ as the word become flesh, as the God-made man who said, I've come that you might have life. I've come that you might operate and walk in fullness of life. And that means taking your sin, taking your shame, taking your condemnation, taking your rebellion against my name, taking the belittlement of my name when I dwell in infinite perfections and killing it to a cross and rising, showing that you can walk as a new creation. God, might you bring about repentance and faith this morning in some. Might they repent of sin and turn to your good, gracious, saving work in Jesus. Might they see Jesus as the only thing that offers life. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that you would help us to lay down what we're supposed to lay down. Those allegiances, those false gods that we functionally put up on our altar, believing that those modifications to work and life and children and happiness and joy would be put to the side as you sit on the altar on the throne of our hearts to allow us to walk in greater joy and greater meaning and greater purpose. Father, help us to think. Help us to hear your truth and respond rightly to it. In Jesus' name, amen.